Good morning. Again. So I've reached a certain age where I look at food the wrong way and gain two pounds and starve myself for like three or four days and like break even. It's kind of really unfair. I'll just be honest. It's, but, you know, my body's gotten to the age, but my mind still thinks I'm young and should be able to eat like chicken wings and cheese steaks and, you know, the stuff I actually enjoy eating versus the healthy stuff that, you know, some people think you should eat. Um, so it works out fine for me, like if I'm in the middle of a season or something and I get to run around with kids and I stay active and it works for me if I exercise uh, or, or get up early and, and work out or do something like that. It doesn't work out real great if I have lunch meetings a couple of times a week and sit at my desk to write sermons, which is kind of my life style. And so you expand, right? you, you grow. Just not the kind of way we like to talk about here. I think that's a great analogy and an example for where we are in our spiritual lives. We sit in services like this and we eat the word. Hopefully feast on it a little bit. We sit in our Sunday school classes and we feast on the word. We read our Bibles at home because you know reading your Bible, you know, five out of seven days a week, seven would be better. Five is great, right? And we eat the word. And then we hopefully have a microgroup where we discuss that. And we eat the word. But how many of us have become spiritually expanded, obese even, because we don't have any activity or exercise that we call service to other people? How many of us have let ourselves just feast and eat and feast and eat and we find ourselves growing and growing, but not in the kind of ways we're talking about that's good, but in the ways where we just become spiritually enlarged by all we're taking in because there's no activity of putting service back out, application back out, doing something with the word we heard back out. Well, we're ordaining three men today um, as, as leaders in the church but I would think of them, to keep the analogy going, more like personal trainers. They work out, they serve, but they're leaders who want to empower and equip and challenge and press on you to get active in the name of Jesus, to glorify God by serving with your gifts and activities. They're leaders who lead us in serving. And so we do have three men that are coming, uh, Michael Copeland, who will be ordained into the gospel ministry, uh, set aside to that. And then two men, who uh, Andy and Paul, who will be ordained as deacons within the, the body of Fletcher. And it's no small task. Michael, we've been staring and glaring at him uh, for about four years of ministry. Interned for a year or two where, you know, we really beat him up and made him do a lot of stuff and prove himself faithful. And then uh, for about the past year, we took the, you know, the intern part off and he's just been serving. And then for our deacons, they are nominated by you, and if you remember that, that was about a year ago, and there were blue sheets again, and, and you put them up there, and then we gave them about a 26, not fill in the blank answer questionnaire, where they had to write five or six or seven pages, depending on their personal wiring, uh, of answers to theological and family and practical questions. They then spent a year with one of our active deacons, uh, meeting about once a week, and then they sat in a, in a council of, uh, of those that are ordained at the church and faced questions and encouragement. Uh, and that's what puts them here today. 
We take the process of leadership very seriously. We want to raise up the kind of leaders that are, going to, that are going to exercise and then help you to exercise the gifts that God has given you. And so it's a super exciting day to have a day like this, to set these men aside uh, after all that they've put in, uh, to, to, to come to this place, to, to be here. And so my, my goal in this message is twofold. One, it's to show you how absolutely ordinary they are. Now, I mean that in the best possible way. <laughs> Absolutely ordinary. Because if you were to read through 1 Timothy 3 or the qualifications of deacons or the qualification of elders, you know what you would find? The kind of things that I say to you every week. Right? Don't be double-tongued, right? Have a pure heart that comes out with pure words. To be self-controlled, to be respectable so that you conduct yourselves in your workplace in a way that gains the respect of the people around you or in your home, the way that gains respect or, or in your daily life and interactions with people, even the waitress after church today, which we will get you to, in a way that gains respect. Like, that's every Christian here. Every Christian here, we want to either prepare you for a marriage of a lifetime of faithfulness and growing intimacy, or we want to help you in your marriage to have faithfulness and growing intimacy. None of that is, is super spiritual and special. And so there is an ordinariness to the qualifications. So what does that mean? It means that we want the people that we elevate in front of you to be exemplary of these. Not perfect, because one of the examples we give is we know how to fess up when we're wrong and take responsibility. We know how to confess to the Lord and to others to bring reconciliation. We know how to ask for forgiveness, right? And so we're exemplary of those that are just a little further down the road who have these qualities and are growing in these qualities so that you can look to them and say, hey, I, I've got this thing going on in my marriage. What does it look like here? I don't know exactly what it looks like to serve. Let's look at these guys here and how they're serving. I don't know how these gifts might work out. Here's how somebody that's in my life is doing it. They provide this example of being a little further down the road, right? So it's really normal stuff. There's a couple, like two, maybe three qualifications that are specific to the job. The rest are normal Christian character that's just matured there a little bit more. And so... Very ordinary, and then the second thing I want to do with this message is show how special and weighty and wonderful it is for God to elevate someone into the position of leadership within a church. It's ordinary, and it's special. Right? It's somebody that's tested, and having been tested, they're put forward to serve. It's somebody that has taken on the responsibility of leadership that's a big deal because the more influence God gives you, the more your failures impact more people and the more uh, your fruitfulness impacts more people. It's, it's a weighty thing to carry the mantle of a title of a leader in God's church. And so I want you to see both of those things as we walk forward in this today. Question uh, to kick us off. Passage begins, disciples were increasing. Passage ends, the word of God was increasing and disciples were being multiplied. Question for you. If God beamed you up, if you're old enough to remember that, or if he teleported you out of Fletcher tomorrow, could it be said that the word increased because I was a part of Fletcher? Could it be said that disciples grew or more disciples came because I was part of Fletcher. Does your life as part of a faithful member of this body 
make a difference for the word growing in its influence in people's lives? Does your life as a faithful member of Fletcher increase the discipleship level of the church overall? If we were teleported out tomorrow, would it make a difference for the word and discipleship? And then the last question uh, that I'll ask is, do you handle problems in a way that brings unity and reconciliation or do you handle problems in a way in your life, your marriage, your friendships, your relationships, your roommates, at church? Do you handle your problems in such a way that unity increases and reconciliation happens? Or do you handle your problems in such a way that fractures grow bigger? That's what we're going to look at. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 today as we get through it. In Acts chapter 6, you get the background of the two main offices of the church uh, of Jesus Christ. And so you, you get the rudimentary the background the formation of these offices that will come later and so you have the apostles these are 12 special guys that will never be duplicated they wrote the word of God they were authoritative over all of the churches but what they did is they traveled in ministry mission circles and ministries and they would go to a church and after a church was formed and planted they would set up elders and so they ministered the word in spiritual formation then they would grow men in the word who ministered the word in spiritual formation and they would leave those groups of men over a church and then go to the next one so the apostles are kind of the unique but they extended their ministry through elders and then deacons they're not mentioned in the text but it is widely understood that this passage is the the kind of organic version of deacons being instituted which will be formalized over the next decades of the church to where it becomes an official office it starts right here. So let's listen. Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves Seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they said, please, the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Perimenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set these before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray for your presence to be special among us today. Every day we gather, but special today. I pray that, that, that the weight of you setting apart men to lead your church would be something that rests on us, that something provokes us to love and good works, provokes us to service, but it rests on us because we realize how precious your church is. We realize how strong she is because you've secured her and the gates of hell will never prevail against her and how fragile she is as her unity can be fractured so easily by our pride and our selfishness. And so, Father, we rejoice 
in the men's lives that are put before us today. We rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved them. We rejoice in the countless experiences of you and your word and your people that have formed them. We rejoice, Father, in the testimonies of faith within their families. We rejoice, God, that you fit them for this service. And I pray, Father, they would feel the, the joy, the normalness, and the weight of leading your people to exercise their faith and real service. And so, Father, help us, God. Be with us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, healthy leaders are essential for healthy disciple-making churches. Healthy leaders are essential for healthy disciple-making churches. The first thing we're going to look at, the first office we're going to look at is elders oversee the spiritual work of serving the word to God's people. Elders oversee the spiritual work of serving the word to God's people. Now, if you've been at Fletcher for any length of time, or if you're even sitting here right now, what you'll notice is we open this thing called the Bible, we read out of this thing called the Bible, and then we do our best to explain to you what is the main point of just what we read, and how does that draw into your life and challenge things in your life to grow and to become more like Jesus Christ. So if you've been around, that's how we minister the word week in and week out to a gathering of people, and we try to press on you, and we try to create the environment uh, through worship songs that kind of reinforce the, 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 the message of the word and, and through prayer times. And, and the goal is that we hear together, that we read, we exhort, and we give sound doctrine together, and it works its way out in the life. But if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard us talk about this thing called Sunday school. And I know that's a very old and stodgy word, but it's on Sunday and we kind of study together, and so, you know, it fits, and it'll be all right. And you have heard us encourage you to be part of a Sunday school class, because that's where you're going to get to know Fletcher. That's where you're going to get to know a group of people, because the people are what makes up Fletcher. That's the way you're going to form relationships and connections. That's where you're going to come with things that you've learned from God and studied, and that's where they're, they're going to share it in a discussion environment, and you're going to all sharpen each other in a group, because the word will be ministered more personally to that group. And then if you've been around a while, you've also heard us talk about this thing called microgroups, which is simply a smaller group than a small group. And that microgroup is two to four people of the same gender who meet together around the word to press the word into each other's hearts more personally, to understand each other's hearts more clearly than you would in a broader context, to have more openness and transparency than you could in a group of 12 or 15 or 20 in a Sunday school class, and place the word there, and hold each other accountable there, and pray for each other there, and know what's going on in each other's lives there. Each of these is centered on a ministry of the word, and each of these ministers the word in just a slightly different way, all of which make up the spiritual formation and the discipleship of us as disciples at Fletcher. And the more you're involved in those things, the more we trust that the Spirit is going to form Christ in us through that process. Because the ministry of the word is essential to the church of Jesus Christ. The ministry of the word on a personal level, a group level, a gathering level, the ministry of the word pressing into each of our, each of our hearts, that's what the church is about, to the glory of God. And so it makes sense that when God set up leaders in his church, one of those leaders' functions was to oversee the ministry of the word and the spiritual formation of people. Not that they did all the teaching, but that they oversaw that all teaching directed itself towards spiritual formation. That the teaching in all of these different groups was, was 
was word-centered, that the teaching in all of these groups was building people to be disciples of Jesus Christ. It just makes sense. And so let's walk through Acts 6. I'm going to walk through the whole text and then kind of pick out the office at the end of it. And so in walking through chapter 6, go back to chapter 5. At the beginning of chapter 5, there's a problem that threatens the fragile new church that is emerging. And that fragile new church, is, its purity is being threatened in chapter 5. There's a husband and wife who want to look like everybody else who is selling their stuff and giving it to the church so that all the different needs of the church could be met and all the different needs of people and widows like we're talking about today could be met. And they wanted to look like the people that were being really generous. And so they sold a piece of land. And they brought in part of the money from that land, which would have been 100% fine if they're like, hey, this is just some of the money from what we got. We kept the rest, but, but here's some Everybody at the church would be like, that's awesome. Thank you so much for your generosity. But instead, they're like, this is everything we made. And they lied to the Holy Spirit, the text says. And God kind of judged them. Because a threat to the purity of the church at that early infant stage could have had wide-ranging problems within the building of that church, the movement of the Word of God. Well, today we have a problem. Now, that problem isn't one of purity and integrity. The problem of today is the problem of unity and and this fledgling baby church with thousands of people that are all baby Christians. Christianity's existed for like a week at this point. I mean, more than that, but you get it. And so there are thousands of baby Christians, and the threat to unity comes up, and there's this chance that this baby church blows itself in half And the word of God, the movement of the word of God stops. And so it's essential what happens here, whether or not the church continues, whether disciples increase, whether the word keeps running forward from them. What happens is essential. And so uh, the disciples are increasing, and then a complaint arises. Now the complaint is from the Hellenists, and you probably don't know who they are. They are Jewish people with a Greek culture that they've adopted. So they are Greek Jews. So they speak more of the Greek language, they've adopted Greek cultural practices, but they're Jewish in their ethnicity and in their religion. Now, they've become believers in Jesus, they've joined the church, and then you've got a group of Hebrew Jewish people who have become believers, who are part of the church, and they're authentic Jews. They speak the right language, they have the right religious practices, they have a Jewish culture as well as their Jewish faith. And now they're thrown together in a church. And the thought in the text is not that they were intentionally neglecting the widows of the the Greek background Jews, but you have language barriers and cultural barriers. You have a church that went from 12 people to a couple of thousand people in a week, and you got to figure out how to take care of them. you got to figure out how to preach sermons as well as take care of their daily needs. And so some things slipped through the cracks, and, and, and it created a division or the potential for a division. So a complaint arose. Now a complaint is a silent uh, disagreement. It's a silent murmuring. And so one person like, hey, it just doesn't feel like the, the Greek Jewish widows are getting taken care of like the Hebrew Jewish widows. Murmur, murmur, murmur. But you know what murmuring always does? It finds friends. And now another person here is like, I don't think that we're getting the same treatment as the others. And then another, I don't think we're getting the same treatment as the others. And and this quiet murmuring, this silent behind-the-scenes murmuring among this group has gotten to a level that it lands on the apostles' desk. And they're like, this has the ability, because it's grown this far that they actually hear about it. It's grown this far, man, we could blow right in half. And so what do they do? 
they bring the church together. It's a problem. Division's going to happen. The benevolence ministry of the church, especially towards widows, like administering it's becoming a nightmare and it's causing problems, so they bring the church together. They don't bring the group together that's upset. They don't bring the group together that's a majority. They bring the whole church together because they want the whole church to unify around the solution, the whole church to unify to move forward. And they, they bring the whole church together. And as they begin to walk it out, they start with, hey, it doesn't make any sense for us to stop preaching the word to serve tables. Now, I, I want to qualify that because it doesn't mean that apostles or elders don't serve tables. If you remember Jesus' model, he washes their feet on that last supper. He gets down on his knees and takes the lowest form of a servant, and he washes their feet, and he's like, okay, guys, here's what it looks like. This is what it looks like to lead the way I lead as you wash feet. And so they're not above or beyond service, but these are 12 men who are responsible for writing the scriptures. These are 12 men who are responsible for getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. These are 12 men to say that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, and we want you to repent and believe. And that's all that's out there doing it. And so it doesn't make any sense for these 12 men to stop what they're doing to dedicate all their time to administering a practical need. The practical need needs to happen. The tangible needs to be, need, needs to be met. It didn't make any sense for them to stop and do it. And so they said, it's not right for that, but here's what we'll do. And they tell the church, what I want you to do is I want you to go and look around the church. And you select seven men. And, and he qualifies those men. We'll talk about in a second. And you bring them to us for affirmation. And they'll be over making sure this happens the right way. So what is the solution? A Georgia Southern logistics major comes in and gives the most efficient means of distributing bread on a daily basis to thousands of people? Nope. A new strategy of benevolence distribution among a megachurch, and they write a book about it, right? Is that the solution? Or is the solution a group of men who are leaders in the church who can lead this thing being happen or this thing getting done right, because you know what, next week there's going to be another problem in the church. And if we developed a book on how to distribute bread, we're going to have to develop another book on how to make sure the, the sound system is covered on a weekly basis with rotating volunteers. And then that's going to get fixed, and we're going to have to have another book on how to pick the color of carpet in churches. And then we're going to have to have another book on, right? And so instead of solving the individual problem with a good strategy... He solves the overall problem of people that are qualified to lead and walk through the issues of the church in a way that solves them biblically and in godly ways that brings unity to the church. And then he qualifies them. Now, Chris's memory is rusty. We've already talked about my age today, so I won't do it again. His memory is rusty. But I've read the New Testament a decent amount, and to my memory... I cannot think of one leadership passage in the New Testament that does not begin and center on the character of leaders instead of the competence of leaders. So when you start finding leaders in the New Testament, you start finding this is what they look like. This is their character. Because God cares a whole lot more about the character of who will lead his people than he does about how good they are, how competent they are at doing it. Now, yes, they need to be competent. They should do heartily unto the Lord. They should work with excellence to the Lord. But that is much less important than the kind of people. 
A very average preacher with a humble heart can accomplish a great deal more than a very gifted preacher with a proud heart that eventually sinks a whole group of people because his self-centered pride. Right? A self-centered, prideful deacon can do a whole lot more damage despite being the greatest businessman in the community. Same with a Sunday school teacher, same with a small group leader, same with a campus ministry leader. They, so much damage can be done by having the right gifts and the wrong character. And so we elevate people with the right character who have enough gifting for God to use. But you know, like God has preached from the mouth of a donkey before. I'm thinking that he can probably use whoever he calls to it to, to, to do what he might want to do. But is there a character there? And so he goes through the character and he's like, they should have a good reputation. They should be of good repute. They should go to lunch after church. If you go to lunch after church, if you don't, it's fine. If you go to lunch after church, it shouldn't be like, oh, great, here come the Christians. No tip. Bunch of ornery people that I don't want to wait on, but they're going to leave me a track. How awesome are they? Hey, that's eternal riches, baby. Forget the 20%. Right? Like, You've you got to have a good reputation so that when you go out into the world, there's a good reputation. When you show up at, uh, at your business, you have a good reputation. You have a good reputation with your coworkers. You have a good reputation uh, to, in, in your neighborhood. All things being equal, you have a good reputation in your work life or, or the way you do business with outsiders. Men of good reputation. People of high reputation. And then look at the next one. Full of the Spirit. Now, I don't need... I don't know where I'm going after lunch or for lunch. I imagine I'm going to be forced to Zaxby's or something like that. But let's say I go somewhere and sit down like Chili's. I don't need that girl to be full of the Holy Spirit to bring me some chicken fingers. But we want you to meet the needs of, uh, of the church to, to have bread on a daily basis. And it's essential for you to have men filled with the Holy Spirit to do that. Wow. That makes no sense, right? I want some guys with, with logistics degrees. I want some guys with some business sense. I want some guys with really good strategies. God wants some people that are full of the Holy Spirit to do the work of tangible, regular needs of meeting people. That's a huge difference in the way I think and the way you think, isn't it? I want some people in my campus ministry that just love Jesus enough to be full of the Holy Spirit that when they put the chairs in a row, they put the chairs in the row as people filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I want people that teach Sunday school that are so filled, or, or not that teach Sunday school, that are just members of a Sunday school class that are so filled with the Holy Spirit that they're just filled with the Holy Spirit and then they dump coffee grounds in a coffee pot and it brews. It matters that they're full of the Holy Spirit. And the, the reason why is there is no such thing in the Christian life as any area that is not sacred, as any area that is not spiritual. It is just as sacred and it is just as spiritual to do an ordinary menial task as it is to do some visible task like what I'm doing right now. Because that's the way God views it, not the way we view it. That's the way God views it. And so unless they're full of the Holy Spirit, I don't want them serving bread to people. Unless they're full of the Holy Spirit, I don't want a strategy from them. Unless they're full of the Holy Spirit, I don't want them to write a book about the strategy. I want people full of the Holy Spirit because it's required to do spirit work uh, the church's spirit work, and it's required to be full of the spirit to do spirit stuff. And then the last one is probably the competent side, full of wisdom. 
That is, they are able to take and see things from God's perspective. They're able to use God's word and God's ways and God's principles to answer stuff in the world that's not quite as black and white as we'd like it to be. And so probably in this case, I I need men with enough wisdom to know the mind and principles of God so that God's ways are represented in how we meet tangible and physical needs. So full of that, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and will appoint them to this duty. They will be over, not do all of the serving of bread, they will be over making sure the bread is served evenly distributed. And, and you read this and you don't realize it. Do you know who the whole congregation chose? Not just part of the congregation. Do you know who the whole congregation chose? Seven men, all of which were Hellenistic believers. Everybody that they elected... The Hebrew background and the Greek background, everyone that they elevated was of of the faction that was concerned about how this thing was happening. What selflessness is that? I I don't want somebody to represent my side, and then you get somebody to represent your side, and since there's seven, we'll have a tie-breaking vote. No, I want to make sure you feel completely loved, completely affirmed, completely above board in the way that this is met, so that we all move forward together in the mission of Jesus. Because it's not about getting my way or your way. It's about getting Jesus' way. And so they did that. And then what happened? Man, this pleased the people. There was rejoicing in the church because they had come back together. There was rejoicing in the church because unity had happened again. There was rejoicing in the church because the needs had been met in real ways. And then what's the result? Problem? There's a dispute and division. Solution? Some guys that can handle this one and the next one. Result, the word of God continued to increase. Disciples didn't just increase, disciples multiplied. So the implication is this, if it hadn't been handled biblically, and if it hadn't been handled godly, the word would have hit the brakes. And it wouldn't have gone as far. If they hadn't handled this in a way that brought unity and division happened, the word of God would stop. And you've been in churches like that. You've been in campus ministries like that. You've been in Sunday school classes like that. Disunity happens and mission stops. Problems arise and factions arise and disciples aren't being made again because it really matters that the carpet was a different color than what you chose. Disunity arises and division happens and we don't, we don't extend the word to our neighbors anymore and we don't press the word on each other anymore. We take sides. But when they handled it biblically, the word kept going. When they handled it biblically, disciples kept multiplying. There is nothing easier than avoiding problems. Like, I hate problems. Don't you hate problems? I hate conflict at home. I hate problems with kids. I hate problems with you guys. I hate when anybody's upset. I don't want to talk about problems. I like when good stuff gets talked about and I get encouraged, don't you? But when we don't deal with problems, problems don't go away. Problems grow. And when problems grow, they grab friends. And when problems grow and grab friends, the work of Jesus for the glory of God stops, and all of a sudden, the mission of God is on hold. But they've handled it biblically. They've handled it godly. And the word is running like crazy, making a difference in people's lives. That's what healthy churches do, who have healthy leaders making it happen. Or, or that, that are being used by God to make it happen. And so, 
Let's look at what qualifications or what, what the elders do. And I'm using the word elders intentionally because the apostles were unique and they won't come back, right? But what the apostles did to extend their ministry into the average everyday local church was appoint elders in every city and town in which the church was established. And, and so if they were to mimic that ministry, they don't write any new word. Like if I write anything in the back of your Bible, don't believe it, right? I mean, if I write it like, Hey, congratulations, I love you, believe that. But if I write like, hey, <laughs> the, the first book of Chris, don't, don't believe it, right? But what did they do that is also transferred over to what will eventually become the office of elders? Well, they have authority, a measure of authority within the church, right? So they are overseeing the ministry of the word. They were overseeing the distribution of the, uh, of the, um, the daily distribution until there was a problem. They are the ones who say this is the solution and the church embraces that and they give them a chance to buy into that and they agree. They are the ones that say this is going to happen and then they are the ones who set their hands on these leaders to make them actually affirm to do that task. So there's a measure of authority. Uh, The second thing we see, look at it, it says it pretty clear in the text. We can't give up preaching the word to wait tables. There's no task in this church that should be below me or anyone else. I won't give a list of them because I don't want to talk about me. There shouldn't be a task in this church that's below any guy we're going to put on this stage today. But there should be a priority given to the ministry of the word that has been uniquely entrusted to the elders of the church to oversee that the word is ministered personally, group, and, and, and publicly. There should be a priority given to that that if anything gets in the way and pulls away from the word and pulls away from the prayer... Uh, that kind of stuff has to be handled and, and separated out in a different way. Right? And so they're, they're entrusted to minister the word. They're entrusted to spiritual formation in the congregation. They're entrusted to oversee those things. Right? You can see that in the text. And then the last thing you see about them is it, it's a group. It's not just an individual. And the multitude of counselors, their safety. If we're going to deal with hard stuff, then... One person's probably going to have blind spots, but a group, we can probably get to where God wants us. If, if we're going to have one person, there's just too many teaching and word needs and equipping needs out there. But if it's shared among a group. And so there's an authority, there's the word that is focused, and then there's a group of them. So what I want to do really quickly, and don't worry, the second point, we've already covered all the text, if you are somebody who's like, okay, I'm, I'm gifted, but I probably will never be an elder, what does this have to do with me? Well, elders oversee the raising up of the ministry of the word all over the church. So let me, let me talk about what it may look like. I'm going to read 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11 real quick. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each, every believer, not elders, as each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's manifold grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks to the oracles of God, and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified. So what is that text saying? It's to all believers, offer hospitality without grumbling. All believers, open your life and open your home to other people. You've heard me say that before, and I will challenge you to that again as long as I have breath. 
Your life should be accessible and your home should be accessible as a place of spiritual formation and care and love and encouragement for other people. And so how is the table in your house being used to care for and grow and strengthen the people that are part of your life and some that aren't? How is your life being opened if it's not your table? How is your life being opened to do the same thing? And then he breaks down the gifts into two main areas. You have a spiritual gift. So if you have one, what do you do? You use it. Why should you use it? Because God has invested grace in your life. And if God's given you something, then you're a steward of it. And it's it's required of stewards to be faithful. And so are you faithfully using the gifts and ability God has given you? As stewards of God's manifold grace, use it. Gift segment one, there are speaking gifts. What's the requirement? Those gifts are governed by the word of God. The gift of gab, because you can talk a lot, is not the spiritual gift of teaching. Somebody that honors the word, somebody that can think about the people around them and bring the word to bear on their lives, that's what the the gift of speaking is like. I I know the word, I have the word, I know and love people, I shepherd people, and then I put the word into their lives. So here's what it might look like. You come to Fletcher, you join of all things, and then you show up to Sunday school week in and week out, and you know what you do? This extraordinary thing. You study what you're studying that week, and you Think about how does it impact my life and cause change. And then, you know what else you do? You're like, hey, that person in my class or that person in my class, I bet the word of God would encourage them deeply. That person in my discipleship group, that person in my campus, I bet that person would be so encouraged by this truth that God is using in my life. And then you show up to Sunday school and you don't dominate the conversation or, or to your discipleship group, you don't dominate the conversation. What you do is, as that passage comes up, you're like, hey, as I was studying, here's the word, let me speak it. You're now starting to faithfully, week in and week out, share truths of God that are valuable. And then maybe somebody stands up and you're like, man, we need to plan a really great party to get new people connected and, and, and older people connected back together so that relationships begin to form. And you're like, man, you know what? Here's what I can do. And then they say, hey, by the way, we don't just want to have a party once a month. We want people to get together and have lunch a lot so that they talk about the Bible a lot. And so you're like, you know what I can do? I can go out to Mexican today after church. No, I can't. It's a challenge sometimes. You could go out to Mexican after church, and then you can make sure somebody from your Sunday school class goes with you, and then you might make sure a guest in the church goes with you, and you get to sit and talk about life and the Word, and and you can do that, and that's how you start faithfully in little ways using the gifts that God has given you, and nothing's big yet. And then all of a sudden you start leading a microgroup, or you're just in a microgroup. Then all of a sudden, you maybe you fill in for your teacher once in a while. Then all of a sudden, maybe God elevates you to a place where you teach and shepherd a group of people. We don't need just teachers. We need shepherds. And you teach and shepherd a group of people. And then when it comes time, if God elevates, then that's who we look at for elders who spiritually minister the word. Right? That's where we're going. And what if you never become an elder? Because most people never will. What if you never become a deacon? Most people never will. And all you've done is give your life away, sharing the word with the people in your class and sharing the word with people in your small groups. And all you've done with your whole life is spiritually forming the people around you. That might be all right, huh? Might be a life worth living to the glory of God. All right, last point. We're going quickly. Deacons lead the spiritual work of serving tangible needs of God's people. Notice how identical the statements are because I want them to be. Uh, Because I think that's what God has. Deacons lead the spiritual work of serving 
tangible needs of God's people. There is no such thing as an activity of the church that is not spiritual. It is just as important, they make me sound good up there, and you only know they're there when something messes up. That's really unfair, isn't it? But, but it's very important that there's somebody up there making me sound good as me up here talking, and I know they got their work cut out for them. Right? It's, it's just as important that somebody sweeps up after a, a fellowship as it is to somebody that speaks in front of the devotion during the fellowship. It's just as important the real physical needs of people get met as it is that the word gets shared. Right? And so deacons lead the spiritual work of tangible needs. Text gives two main areas very quickly. The area of the deacon, number one, is why do they come into being? Because unity is threatened. So what is goal of deacon number one? Is that they have such a heart and a connection and a care for the needs of people that they war against disunity within the church. They're there before the problem can elevate to a place where it might split people in half. So they, they unify the church. What else do deacons do? It's right there in the text. The word itself means to wait tables. And all over the New Testament it's used as just simple servant. Simple table waiter. You could just say, we are ordaining two waiters today, and it would be just as accurate to what the Greek word is. They serve tangible needs. And more than that, they lead to make sure tangible needs get met. So, what would this look like? Again, you show up to Sunday school, and you're like, you know what? The coffee hadn't been made in in the past week or two. I'm going to show up 15 minutes earlier. That is a monumental amount of time, isn't it? And they show up 15 minutes early, and they make coffee. Brew, right? By the way, if you do that, eight-level scoops, 12 cups of water, that's the formula, and you make coffee. And then maybe you walk into class and you're like, man, this place is kind of a mess. And why don't I just straighten up some chairs? Why don't I make sure the teacher has the supplies that they need? Nobody notices. Nobody asks you to do it. You just want to meet needs. And then you have this fellowship. And, and let's just be honest. We're all, y'all are gross. You got crumbs all over the floor. You just leave your drink cup full of ice and water on the table and you just bail out. I do too. I'm gross too. And there's some people that you never ask them, but they disappear, and you're like, man, where'd the cup go? Oh, they cleaned up. They grabbed a broom. They grabbed them up. They just simply served and didn't need to be asked. And they didn't do it for anybody to notice, but God, like, he shows people like that. And then they show up to class, and somebody from their care leader is like, hey, hadn't seen these people in a couple of weeks. Could anybody just reach out and say, hey, how are you doing? I want to make sure everything's okay. Could anybody just go love on these people we hadn't seen in a while? Give me their number. And you just do that, then all of a sudden you are a care leader. And what if you spent your whole life never being a deacon, but making sure the people around you felt cared for and loved? Checked on when something's going on in their life. Meals showing up when it's needed. Whatever the need is. What if you just spent your whole life behind the scenes making sure things went well? That'd be an all right Christian life, wouldn't it? And then what kind of people would God elevate to the next level? Not people that, like, if you get the title, all of a sudden you'll start serving. Faults. You've met them, right? You have seen your campus ministry or your Sunday school class or your church put somebody up there because, like, man, when I give them this title, they're really going to start doing it. And they're the exact same after they got a title as they were before. No, but you find a group of people that are like, I'm already serving. I don't care. I got a broom, and I'll always have a broom. I don't care. I'll call people and make sure they feel cared for. I don't care if I'm ever anything else. And that's the kind of people it just makes sense that God would put to lead 
his people. And so a few charges as we, as we wrap up. So I want to charge the men that are being ordained today, as well as you, hopefully you've heard from this, that the servants that are up here, it's just their job to lead you to exercise your gifts out there in a thousand little ways of just faithfulness. Faithfulness that's seen, faithfulness that's not seen, but active service that keeps you from spiritually engorging yourself to being spiritually active and fit and, and, and exercising your gifts. So to, to these guys, be exemplary. Nobody's asking you to be perfect. We have a very gracious church that does not hold you to the perfect standard. But be people that, that the congregation can look to and say, in this area, what, what do I do? Let me look at our leaders. That's how they're doing it. Uh, or, or they're challenged with how are we going to serve or what are we going to serve? And they go and they look and they can see our leaders leading and opening up the opportunities. And so just be examples. Be examples of how to reconcile when you've blown it. Be examples of how to ask forgiveness when you've done the wrong thing. Second, prioritize abiding in Christ. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says, which means apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. It's not super interpretive, right? But you can sure be very, very active and very, very busy without any connection to Jesus Christ. And so... For our leaders and our leaders as they encourage service and others, prioritize abiding in Christ because the only way that all you're doing will make any difference is if it's connected to Jesus Christ. Third, sacrifice to serve. I always challenge our leaders with this. Do not sacrifice your family on the altar of ministry. Do not sacrifice your family on the altar of ministry. But... And that's what servants do, right? I'm going to just do one more thing. I'm going to do one more thing. I'm going to do one more thing, and I'm going to neglect. But families should sacrifice to minister. So both sides of the equation are true. You don't sacrifice your family to, to, to be ministers, but your family should sacrifice to serve Jesus and to minister to his people. And then Michael, especially pressing in on you, I want to challenge you to don't grow weary in doing good. One of the challenges to ministry is it's a whole lot more like planting grass in a bunch of dirt than it is like mowing grass that's already there. Very rarely do you see the outcome. Very rarely do you see the results. It takes months and months and months and years and you get like one little shoot of grass and like that's the entire sum, visible sum of what you've accomplished. And so don't grow weary in doing good. There's a lot that we do that will never be seen this side of heaven and that's okay. Second, fight for humility. The biggest challenge to having gifts like this is you stand up in front of people and they're like, man, that was, such, that was such a good sermon. You stand up and, man, you really spoke. And uh, You get in front of people and you get visible and the pride we all struggle with becomes the much bigger struggle than anything else. But pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And, and so if we don't fight for, pride, pride, for humility, if we don't fight for humility as servants of Jesus in any area of influence, we just increase the ability for more people to be harmed by our fall. And then the last one, hold fast to God's word. You'll have no shortage of strategies and no shortage of other voices to encourage you to trust something else, some other way. There'll be no shortage of Bible studies for you to pick from and no shortages of strategies for how to grow your group. But God's only spoken through one book that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword that's better than gold and sweeter than honey on the honeycomb. And actually changes people's lives. So hold, hold God's word when everything tempts you to try something better or else.
And so that's what I encourage you to. You have some implications on the back of your bulletin. I would definitely encourage you to go through those. You're gifted. How are you using your gifts? There's tangible ways you could help the people that are leading in your, your ministry areas. Are you helping them? If you disappeared from your group tomorrow, would your group be fine? Or would your group, man, I grew from them. They were so vital to what we were doing. How can you help tangibly your groups become healthier? And then how do you foster unity and purity? So what we're going to do now, uh, I'm going to pray. And while I do, if you you are ordained from any like faith and practice church, if you're ordained as a pastor or a deacon, I'm going to ask you to line up over here. Again, I'm going to pray, give you some time to transition. Uh, So you will come over here. Um, our candidate, or our, our people being ordained will come and they'll sit in these seats here and you'll just walk by and you'll pray for each one of them individually. This will be when we do our main worship set so the congregation will sing uh, in the meantime. But if you have any ordination of a like faith church, line up over here and, and come and pray over these guys. Uh, and then everybody else, for about a verse and a chorus, all they're gonna do is play instrumentally and you're gonna have a chance to pray for these guys, these families You're also going to have a chance to see what God might be prompting you to as you look to use your gifts, as you look to to apply what God has shown you in your life. And then we're going to join together and we're going to close in our worship set. So let's pray and uh, we will go forward from there. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you would elevate men to the gospel ministry to equip saints for the work of the ministry. We thank you that you would write such a testimony of grace in these families that these men have served such that they can now lead us to serve better together. And so, Father, we pray you would use this time to be a special marker in their lives of encouragement and hope that they might fan into flames the gifts that you have given them and that we might lay our hands on them to set them aside to what you've done. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, if you would stand. We'd ask you for just about a verse and a chorus to have some personal reflection time. You can sit as well and just be praying and reflecting. Uh, Tom will come up and lead us uh, after, after that first instrumental verse.